Hey folks, welcome to the first full episode of OK Talks. Just in case you haven't listened to the first three-minute entry of the podcast where I introduce myself and lay out in a bit more detail what I'm hoping to do here, I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations who's worked for several democratic campaigns and liberal organizations, and also been lucky enough to live in a number of countries outside the U.S., One country where I've spent a substantial amount of time is the Philippines, and I've decided to make that country, its politics, and its response to the coronavirus crisis the focus of my first episode. In a little bit, I'm lucky enough to be joined by my friend Dr. Jerry Diaz, who's on the front lines combating the virus in Manila. But before we talk to Jerry, I want to take a couple of minutes to give my listeners a little bit of a backgrounder on what's been going on in politics in the Philippines for the last couple of years. For a lot of Americans, myself included, our political consciousness was sort of rocked a couple of years ago when a person who'd spent the last 20 years realistically as nothing more than a public joke was somehow, with a lot of luck and help from a foreign intelligence agency, elected to the presidency with a minority of the national vote. The campaign and the administration of Donald Trump realistically as an incompetent right-wing populist with authoritarian tendencies has fueled among a lot of my friends on the left a discussion about democracy in peril in a global sense as other countries since Trump was elected have fallen to similar right-wing populists with authoritarian tendencies. I'm thinking of Brazil and a couple of others, for example. But a lot of people don't realize that the Philippines actually went first in this sense. Duterte was already elected president and being referred to as, quote, the Trump of the East, unquote, even before Donald Trump had managed to improbably work his way into the White House. Calling Duterte the Trump of the East really makes a lot of sense, as there is probably no single world leader who has as much in common with Donald Trump as does Rodrigo Duterte, at least in terms of style. One of the key differences is that unlike Trump, Duterte actually does have a substantial amount of political experience. He spent about two decades as the mayor of the Philippines' third largest city, Davao, a mayoralty that was characterized by widespread accusations of human rights abuses and extrajudicial killings carried out by death squads. When he ran for president, Duterte really made no secret of his plans to kill a whole lot of people uh, and has largely delivered on that since elected president. He's taken his particularly brutal policies from his time as mayor and applied them at a national level. Tens of thousands of people have been killed in extrajudicial killings as part of Duterte's war on drugs. Whether or not all or even most of those people were guilty is a thing that's in question, and if they were guilty, whether it was guilty of a crime that would warrant being shot by a death squad. Like Trump, Duterte seems to have also totally rejected the premise that as a person elected to the presidency of a country, he should act in any way presidential. He has a long history, which has continued since his presidency began, of really absurd public statements. Also like President Trump, Duterte seems to employ the strategy of dangling the shiny object of a particularly deranged quote to distract public attention when he seems on the brink of getting into trouble for something more serious. Given what I just said, I'm sure you thought here I was going to take the high road and not play Duterte's game, but no, no, I can't resist sharing some of his greatest hits. For example, quote, If you are corrupt, I will fetch you using a helicopter to Manila, and I will throw you out. I have done this before, why would I not do it again? Unquote. Incredibly, this is not even close to the first time Duterte has admitted on the record having murdered people. Speaking of murdering people, here goes another quote, Just because you're a journalist, you are not exempted from assassination if you are a son of a bitch, unquote. He's also positively compared himself to Hitler when fantasizing about killing lots of people. 
But just in case you thought the only deranged things Duterte said in public related to his violent murder fantasies, no, no, he's also said really disgusting violent sexual stuff in public as well. Probably his most notorious quote came during his mayoralty, when a nun from Australia was raped by multiple people and murdered in the late 80s, and he said, quote, I was angry that she was raped. That's one thing. But she was so beautiful. The mayor should have gone first. What a waste. Unquote. Cool guy. I'm sure it was just locker room talk. Perhaps my personal favorite came when Duterte was discussing a pretty serious ISIS problem that was going on in the southern part of the Philippines and said, quote, Give me salt and vinegar and I'll eat his liver. Unquote. I can only assume that he was trying to outdo President Trump's earlier statement that he would, quote, bomb the shit, unquote, out of ISIS by saying that President Duterte was so tough that he's not just going to beat the terrorists, he's going to eat the terrorists. On its own, this would seem almost uniquely crazy. But in a world with fire and fury, grab him by the pussy, and proposing that we build a moat filled with alligators on the Mexican border, it's easy to imagine Rodrigo Duterte is basically what would happen if Donald Trump were allowed to have death squads. I have to admit at this point, I've even gotten into the habit of reading crazy Duterte quotes with a Trump accent. Of course, I didn't have the guts to do it on the air, but, you know, maybe someday. You'll hear later in our interview, Jerry and I discuss at some length how it is that Duterte is able to get away with such crazy behavior while serving as the president. Another thing that has set Duterte apart from his predecessors as president of the Philippines, and this is something that Jerry and I talk about also at length in the interview, is the extent to which he seems to have a much greater interest in having close ties with uh, communist China than have previous leaders of the Philippines. Speaking of Jerry, just by way of introduction, we met at a party in a hostel in Cambodia about two years ago. Figured out pretty quickly that we had a lot in common and became good friends and stayed in touch. He's an especially interesting person to talk to about the situation right now, both because of his direct experience as a doctor working on the front lines to combat the coronavirus, but also as a person who grew up both in the United States and the Philippines. Jerry has a foot on both continents and is able to provide a particularly interesting cultural context to a lot of the things we discuss in the interview. As you'll hear, we discuss Jerry's own background, the impact of the coronavirus to his own work and to the people of the Philippines, and some of the potential implications in the longer term for politics in the region. Okay, so I'm joined now by my friend Jerry Diaz, who's a doctor in the Philippines in Manila. Um, how's everything going over there, Jerry? Everything's fine. Okay. How are things um, fine? Uh, well, we're, we're surviving over here. Everything's going, everybody is going a little bit stir crazy, I think. But, uh, you know, we're, we're getting used to the quarantine, which was actually just extended for another two weeks. So I, mm. I figured just to get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood, where you grew up? My childhood. Uh, so basically, I was born in Manila. And when I was about four, we all moved to San Diego in California. Because my dad had work. Um... Actually, she actually was like a consul in the embassy in LA. And then uh, when, I about, when I was 19, because my parents never really, they never really wanted to stay in the US indefinitely. So they just worked there for a couple of years. So they all decided to move back. So when I was 19, moved back to the Philippines. I finished college here. I was taking up biology. Now, I did end up in med school. So the thing is, uh, in the Philippines, if you take up biology uh, in college, you're like, you can either be a researcher or like a biology teacher afterwards. And there was two options. Um, I was really keen on both options. So like, I don't know, like everyone was saying, it's a pre-med course, so just take up medicine. 
Oh, interesting. You, you were thinking about uh, teaching, actually. No, those are like the options in the Philippines. Ah, okay. And I, I, don't, I don't see myself as a teacher. Ah. And I don't see myself as a researcher. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. The, logical, the logical path is to be like, take up medicine. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So in your childhood, you, you kind of had a foot in, in both the East and the West then. Because, I mean, it sounds like a lot of your earlier formative years were in the U.S. And, and then you kind of, it was, was, that, was that an adjustment to go back to the Philippines right when you were like starting your 20s? Um, yeah, it was a major adjustment because it's way different. I mean, we often like go, go back to the Philippines every summer for the summer break. Okay. So like, uh, so like I got to know my family, uh, my family here. Um, but then actually living here long term, it was like a major adjustment. Like for one thing, most of my friends were in the U.S. So I had to like start from scratch when we moved here. Mm -hmm. And it's actually like huge culture shock um so basically like our place in the u.s um uh, it's like a suburb okay but, you know you know how it is like in san diego it's like by the beach so like it's more laid back compared to like la mm. and the other cities in the u.s and in manila it's like a huge like asian city yeah I, I, like I, you've been I, southeast asia you know how it is <laughs> yeah. you've been here actually yeah i was, I was gonna say I, I don't think i've ever seen as much traffic as i did when i was in manila that was i mean as, as bad as well i mean i guess you weren't in la you were in san diego but i mean california's yeah, famous yeah. for terrible traffic but i imagine nothing could have possibly prepared yeah, I know. For manila. yeah 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 <laughs> i was like like first year here i was like Okay, when I go back to California, I will never complain about traffic again. <laughs> it's probably the worst in the world. Oh, God. Okay, so speaking of, of having been in multiple different places, I, I think you and I have actually talked in the past about some of the work that you've done uh, volunteering and, and doing other medical work in other countries. Do you, do you want to tell everybody a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, so like my plan was after med school, I want to travel a bit and do volunteer work on the side. And like most people upon graduation, they do like, they go into medical residency immediately. So that means like if you want to specialize, you want to take up internal medicine, surgery, whatever, you do that, maybe just take a month off and then go residency. But I decided to take like uh, about two years off to travel and to do some volunteer work. I plan to join Doctors Without Borders. But the thing was, that time, the only placements that were available were like in war-torn countries. And I was like, oh. um, I wasn't ready. Uh, yeah, it's a little yeah. too much. I wasn't ready to die yet. <laughs> so what I did was, I, like, I tried to find something on my own. But I think it, it was kind of difficult. You know how it is. Like when you do a Google search, like, uh, like maybe just put on keywords like volunteer work, uh, then a random country. I found an NGO in in Tanzania. Uh, it's called Foot to Africa. So I applied okay. directly. So, so that's what happened. I, um, I did volunteer work for a month in Tanzania and two weeks in Zamb Zambia. It's just across the border. Uh, it was funny. Uh, when I was there, there was like a local elections going on. So like for two weeks. When I, when I arrived, there were so many doctors there, doctors and nurses. So there were so many of us. Then one by one, they were leaving. I didn't know why. So apparently there was some elections going on and all the face was going to be like, like something's going to happen, like violence or something like that. Oh. But for about two weeks, I was the only one left. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's pretty interesting. All right. So, so uh, you had mentioned before about, uh, you know, not, uh, not being quite ready to die. <laughs> uh, super dark transition. But um, 
why don't you tell us a little bit more about your your personal experience with um, the thing that's on everybody's mind right now with the coronavirus, since um, you apparently had an experience of that right when you got uh, back, basically, to the office from travel. Yeah, like, um, I was in the U.S. for like a month to visit family. When I came back here, I saw a couple of patients. Uh, one was this Taiwanese, Taiwanese dude. Um, he just completed a fever. Uh, around that time, the product, we're following like protocols. It's the same as with other countries. We assign patients like they're either patients under monitoring or under investigation. But that guy didn't fit any criteria. So I was just see, I was just thinking, I was just like, I thought it was a normal fever. He didn't have a travel history, nothing like that. Then two days after, he had like uh, a runny nose. So we went to like uh, the emergency room and they did a test on him. Then he tested positive after a week. Now, since I was like the first doctor who saw him, I had to go into isolation for 14 days. <laughs> so that, that was my first direct experience. So after the 14-day period, like I went back to work. That patient you had was, was like, I think you said it was basically the first patient you had when you got back, right? Uh, maybe the third one. On my it's first like, day. Well, welcome back. First, first, first hour in the office. Yeah, just my luck. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, um, so you mentioned doing some work in hospitals now. So you know, you it's 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 interesting your sort of your sort of experience with this because it's like you you were working, um, and you were exposed to the virus before the society seemed to have really reacted to it. So it's, this is weird. I, I keep thinking of the situation in the beginning of the walking dead where, you know, Rick wakes up a month later after the zombie apocalypse has happened. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that your, your, uh, your experience might be a little bit like that in that you were, you know, you, you basically got there, were exposed, quarantined, and then, you know, yeah. 14 days later you come out and everything's massively changed. Can you, can you talk a little bit about yeah, how, like... how that shift looks to you? <laughs> I was basically went on early on uh, quarantine earlier. Uh, I mean, you're aware, like everyone's on lockdown in, in Manila. Yeah, and, and actually, the entire Luzon in the Philippines. So, like, you cannot, you can't go out unless you, unless you're going to buy some medicine or food or whatever. The yeah. basic stuff. Okay, so basically, I um, I went to quarantine like ten days earlier. Then everyone was like, uh, the rumors are going around, like it's going to be on lockdown. You know, it's going to be on lockdown. You right before it was cool. (laughs) (laughs) So um, after the lockdown, everything was closed at first. But then after a week, they decided to open clinics. But everything would be by appointment. So uh, so I had to go back to work. Um, It depends on the year. The first day I went out, like the area like around my house. Um, I barely saw any people, but driving to work, I passed by several areas where there are so many people outside. You think like there was no quarantine going on. Okay. So you mentioned seeing a bunch of people in the streets now. Do you think yeah. people are starting to become more resistant to the quarantine now than they were initially? You know, like, um, as a medical professional, I would say that we need to be on quarantine for a longer period of time but to be realistic about it. It's not really feasible in like in countries like the Philippines. Like a lot of people here, um, they're like daily wage earners. So like a couple of days, I mean, they don't get paid if they don't work. So a couple of days, they're going to go hungry. I think that's a big factor. I mean, that's why a lot of people are getting restless. The majority of the population here are, are those people. So if you have to choose, 
let's say you don't work for a month, you will surely go hungry. You will surely go hungry. You will die of hunger. And the other option yeah. is you're going to continue working. Then you might, you may get a virus. And if you get it, you may or may not die. So it's not certain. So if you have to yeah. choose between certain deaths, with like with something uncertain, yeah, you know what these people are going to choose. Yeah. So, so like, it's usually hard. But, like you see the news, the same thing is happening in India and a lot of other like less developed countries with, with, with mm-hmm. the same demographics. Uh, I was actually, I was going to ask you a little bit more about the, the way things are being handled in the place where you're working now, but this actually brings up another interesting point. So maybe we'll circle back to that, uh, to that later, uh, to, to what you were saying, um, this, this, this whole situation and the lockdown does seem to, as you say, present people in, in a poorer economic situation with a really complicated choice of choosing between the possibility of a virus or the certainty of running out of resources. So that being the case, is, is the government in the Philippines doing anything to try to help people who are getting economically hit by this, who are, you know, realistically are not able to get food if they run out of resources? Um, I don't really know what the government is doing exactly, but like what I've been hearing, they've been basically, basically been giving out dole outs, like providing food for, 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 uh, for families who are like below a certain income bracket. So basically, it's the local governments who are in charge of their own like citizenry. And okay. then, like the national government just like gave out guidelines. Then the local governments are in charge of their own citizens. That's that's okay, how it's so, been working out here. So then, the national government has not, do you think, taken a super hands-on approach in terms of of giving people what they need to be able to stay in quarantine? Uh... I'd say they're doing the best they can. Okay. Like, I'm like on the news, so like, you, you see, like, they're doing like national programs. Just right now, under lockdown, there's no public transport. They've been mm-hmm. trying to do, like, you know, providing like free shuttle buses for like essential workers and stuff. Okay. It's still lacking, though, because what's happening now, um, you know, like certain private companies, like those call centers, the business processing. Uh, businesses so those are basically private companies and they, and they need to provide uh, lodging and transportation for their own workers so what the government's providing it's not enough so i did a grocery run the other day so um managed to talk to one of those ladies managing the cashier uh so i asked her how did you get here so she told me like everyone Everyone, they've just been sleeping in the, in the grocery, like on the floors. Oh my God. So they don't need to go home. Because, because yeah, there's not like public transport. How would they go to work? Oh, wow. And they're required to go to work because they're like classified as essential workers. Yeah. And I mean, not everywhere is like this, but, but the fact that you get to talk to people who are experiencing, who are experiencing this, that means the government's not doing enough. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that, I got to say, that's, that's pretty astounding to me, the story. I mean, like, the fact that there's even anecdotal evidence of people that are literally, you know, sleeping in, in a grocery store. I mean, in particular, at a time where, where we're supposed to be staying away from people as much as possible, you'd think that mm-hmm. be exactly not the time you'd want someone to be sleeping in the fruit aisle or something. Um, <laughs> I guess at the very least, I'm sure this probably improves the traffic situation. Um, but... Speaking of the of the federal government uh, or the national government of the Philippines, um, those are some interesting points you brought up there. And and another one that I wanted to ask you about is uh, is is whether you think they responded quickly enough. Because I mean, various countries, um, like like just for example, 
South Korea and the United States had their first case on the same day. Mm-hmm. The difference between the responses in those two places has been yeah. incredible because, I mean, South Korea, South Korea set up contact tracing and all this sort of stuff, whereas President Trump just yeah. continued, you know, tweeting, you know, mean tweets at, at you know, Super Bowls at 4 a.m. or whatever it is that he does rather than responding very quickly. And and uh, <laughs> the Philippine president, President Duterte, has quite a bit in common with President Trump. And I've heard some whispers about people being, let's say, dissatisfied with the speed of the response. So can you tell me from from your perspective, uh, you know, in, in your in your field, do you believe that the government responded quickly enough? Uh, yeah, I was looking at the time on the other day. Actually, the Philippines was one of the first countries who imposed those travel bans to and from China. Technically speaking, I would say they they did a the they imposed the travel bans early. But the thing is, with the situation here, uh, I think it wasn't early enough to prevent the spread. Like in Jan, uh, the first case here, like the first recorded case of COVID, it's like it was diagnosed on January twenty seven. Now Chinese New Year was when I think it's like nineteen or twentieth. I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so anyway, like, like earlier, like thirty uh, of January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like they imposed an early travel ban, but I would think it's it wasn't early enough. Because you know how it is, like in Chinese New Year, Chinese they like a lot of them go back home to spend time with their families for the New Year, and then they go back to the Philippines. So if you're going to impose a travel ban. For it to be effective, I would believe they should have like done it before the Chinese New Year, before everyone went back home. Mm. Because at a stance now, right now, like I don't know, like six more than six thousand cases in the Philippines. Um, just about two days ago, we had the most number of cases in Southeast Asia. And it's not really hard to figure out why. I mean, you, I mean, you can see there are a lot of direct flights from China, like in the, um, during the Chinese New Year period. A lot yeah. of direct flights to and from China compared to like other countries. Do you think part of the disinclination of the governments to impose those travel bans a little bit earlier might be because of President Duterte's relationship with the Chinese government? Uh, I can say for sure, but like I'm inclined to think that is a factor. Former president, President Aquino, I wasn't too fond of him, but you can see the glaring difference. Like when Duterte became president, you can see like yeah, what do you call this? He's actually too lenient when it comes to the Chinese. Not that I blame him, but you know how it is. If you do, you have trade relations with China, like yeah. a lot of countries, they turn a blind eye because you get a lot of benefits by trading with China. Yeah. But from what I understand, Duterte has a, a particularly friendly relationship with the Chinese government in comparison to other leaders that have been in charge of the Philippines in the past, no? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Okay. And how do you uh, think how do you think people there feel about this? I mean, like, I, I know that for a lot of people right now, um, you know, they're basically thinking about subsistence and survival and stuff, but if, if there's a conversation when this wraps up about whether or not things could have been done earlier, do you think that, uh, that Duterte's closeness with the CCP might end up causing some political problems for him in the Philippines? Even before it's happened, it's like this dislike sentiment in the Philippines against Chinese. Uh, most recently, 
if you've heard about like the territorial issues in the South China Sea. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that was a big issue like, for the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, you know, they're, they're like their nine dash line thing. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so just, basically... just for, the sake of, for the sake of people listening, uh, it's worth, um, I, I should probably provide a little bit of background here or, or Jerry, you can too, or, you know, however you want to do that. Basically, uh, China has declared parts of territories that are, inter- you know, that are recognized as international waters in the South China Sea. Yeah, they declared to be part of Chinese territory, which creates a problem because... You know, Vietnam has interest there. So does the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I was in the Philippines, a lot of Filipinos that I met refer to it as the West Philippine Sea rather than the South China Sea. But <laughs> um, in, in from an American context, this is interesting as well because uh, freedom of the seas is 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 considered to be part of the United States' core international strategy and has been since President Wilson. So under the Obama presidency. Uh, President Obama just took two, they, they didn't put any bombs on them, but, but took two B-52 bombers and just flew them straight through the exclusion zone that China had declared as kind of a giant <laughs> middle finger. Um, but, but yeah, so so I'm, I'm sorry to have uh, put you off there, Jerry. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about how that's... How that's how that's so, so, they're, so basically they're claiming the entire South China Sea as yeah. part of China. So that, that's ridiculous. It's like India claimed the entire Indian Ocean as part of India. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know what makes us really it doesn't make sense because you know, like the United Nations, what do you call that? United Nations Convention of the Law of the Seas. Do you yeah. know that? Yeah, yeah. So basically it states that uh, a country owns up to two hundred nautical miles from their land mass. So that's why that's where like all these territorial disputes are coming from. China is claiming islands that are like within the, the 200 nautical miles from the Philippines, from Vietnam, from Malaysia. Yeah. Just because they're like in the South China Sea. Yeah. I mean, they've essentially declared the South China Sea to be a Chinese lake. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then like one thing, this doesn't make sense. Would you like at the United Nations uh, Convention of the Law of the Sea? China is a signatory. So why are they not following a law that they signed? That they're like, they're like signatory to this law. From from what I understand, their solution to this has basically been to send a boat with a dredge out into the middle of the ocean, dig up part of the bottom of the ocean, pile it on top of the other parts, and build an island, and then declare that island to be part of China, so they can extend the. Yeah, they've been doing that a lot. Like like um, they've been dumping like. They're like making artificial islands yeah. and like from reefs. Then they're like making like uh, middle tower bases and yeah. stuff like that. Okay, so you know we've talked a little bit about you know we've talked about the virus in the Philippines. We've talked about the complicated relationship between you know both politically and culturally between the Philippines and China. Um, you know we haven't talked yet that much about the virus before it arrived in the Philippines. So you know to be blunt, do you think this was basically China's fault? Um, if I'm going to be honest about it, yeah, I think it's, this is all China's fault, obviously. I mean, like, if you've seen the news, if you like read read stuff in the news, it's evident like from the very start they chose to cover up, cover it up, and then you've been hearing reports about like certain Chinese doctors who were like expressing alarm as early as December about a certain virus that like that's spreading, and then they choose like not to disclose it. To other people, I mean, to other countries, until uh, it was like too big to contain. Or... 
Well, not only that, but to, to put those doctors in prison and... rather than listen to them. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, uh, and one more thing, like they did like impose travel bans. They like restric- restricted travel among their citizens. But for me, that was like, a little too late. Like they were aware that this was going on like, as early as December. They should, if that, they were aware of this, they should have like imposed those travel bans like before Chinese New Year, before a lot of their citizens were like traveling to like a lot of countries for vacation over the New Year. And I think that's the main reason like this virus is everywhere now. I mean, you've been traveling a lot. So, I mean, you know that like in, in every country, you're going to see like busloads of Chinese tourists. And it was like even more, like there were so many more like Chinese travelers during that period of time. That's so that that helped with the virus. Rather, the virus. Interesting. You think that's because of the new year? No, I, I like in, in, in relation to that. I'm really frustrated with the, like the WHO, the World Health Organization. Yeah, I was I was going to ask actually, like how? Oh, yeah, no, you... Sorry, like yeah. building on that, I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. But I, I also, I mean, like, given how you think China yeah. has handled this from the start, do you do you feel like it's a little bit ironic that China is now getting all this this praise and accolades for how quickly they shut down and everything? <laughs> I don't think they deserve all the praise. For one thing, the shutdown, what he did, it was a little too late for me. I mean, that's just my own opinion. So the shutdown, it was late. And then what else have we been praising about China? Like the response? Yeah, I mean. Like, so I hear like people, they were like, uh, they were like praising like the low death rate, the low transmission rate. I don't believe anything that's coming out from China. Like you can see how fast it's spreading in other countries. And then you can see that like, they don't the rate of spread in China, but like once they reach eighty thousand, there's only been a trickle of new cases. How how is that even possible? Yeah, it's I think it's it's especially yeah. interesting that we started receiving those statistics right after they kicked out all of the journalists from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other like, major newspapers. You uh, said there's one thing like um, other nations should learn about is you can't really trust China. I'm not being xenophobic. I'm just stating facts. Yeah. Like like years before, with with SARS, with, with all other illnesses, not just about like, not, not just regarding illnesses, like anything uh, anything on the sun, China has never been completely truthful. Right, you're you're talking about the reliability of information that comes out of China, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of through the CCP's filter. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I cut you off before you were, you were starting to say something about the WHO as well. Would you like to finish that thought? Okay. So I'm really frustrated with like the WHO. I mean, as a medical professional, I don't think like, I don't think their response is adequate or even appropriate. You could see that they're like obviously pandering to China. Okay, maybe not really pandering. Um, one way to look at it in another perspective, maybe they're afraid to like, you know, call out China. Yeah. From the very I, start, I, like, they were like, in opinion, what they've been saying. Like, China said, like, there's no evidence of human to human transmission. And then they tell a lot of countries that, no need to worry. And as late as January, they said there's no need to impose travel restrictions to and from China. Travel restrictions don't work, blah, blah, blah. And good thing a lot of countries didn't follow their advice. But what's sad is a lot of like a lot of countries, especially like the less developed ones, they listen to the WHO. They they don't I don't know, they they are like hesitant to make their own decision. Do you think part of the reason uh, that the WHO was not you know, inclined to be particularly forceful in their in their advice or anything like that it might be because as an organization, it's just like not empowered enough to do that. 
yeah, like much like the United Nations itself. My opinion of those organizations, um, I mean, in theory, uh, I would think that they would serve a function, but in reality, they're basically toothless. Like they can't rein in all their member states. Like take China, for example, like mm -hmm. let's say in the UN, the Human Rights Council within the UN, uh, they, they're like quick to investigate poor countries like in Africa about human rights violations. Yeah, yeah, but then like China, in China, like <laughs> you don't even investigate all these things happening in China, but doing just like the Muslims there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's um, well, yeah. I think that's an interesting. Well, it's an interesting analysis of of well the inability of some of these international organizations uh, to you know to respond effectively to this might be just because they they straight up are not given enough power. Uh, yeah. by like the international structure do you do you think then given i mean given what we've just been talking about and given the fact that you know from what i've been reading some people in the philippines do think that the president's response has been too slow and that part of the reason for that is because he has a let's say a closer relationship with the communist party in china than most uh than most filipino presidents previously do you think that after this all clears up if there's a conversation about that that duterte could take any sort of hit politically for maybe not responding well enough because he didn't want to piss off President Xi. Uh, based on my observations for the past couple of years, um, not really. Because, um, Just because he can get away with almost anything. Yeah, no, yeah, he can get away with it. This is like really popular. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 uh, it certainly confuses like, like me. Up to now, he's, he's, <laughs> well, and, until now, he has like close to 90% approval rate. <laughs> I'm sure with like any president in the U.S. Who, like, yeah, four years in. Yeah, like close to ninety percent still approve of. Oh my god, I, I that's that yeah that's that's I know he's had traditionally he's had what I would consider to be absurdly high approval ratings considering his performance. So that's like when well, you talk to random, like from like some people who think like all these surveys are all manufactured, they're like fake. Mm. But when you talk to random people in the streets, like they really adore him. Yeah, I, I found a real mix. I mean, that was one of the things like, I got to say from my, my, my personal experience in the Philippines. Um, I was astounded by how many people, even in, in Manila, in the more you know liberal urban centers, were, were quite okay with his president. I mean, like, let me put it this way. I, mm -hmm. some, some of the people that I talked to were just just immune to facts like they would make the same kind of arguments as trump supporters when when you say like yeah. you know you, you say well you know x thousands you know number of people have been shot in extrajudicial killings i say no it's just the fake news and whatever and the un's out to get us and and like people who seem otherwise reasonable who who will then just start denying basic easily provable reality and that was that was kind of shocking to me because you know in the u.s when you talk to hardcore mm -hmm. trump supporters you can usually see them coming, you know, usually, usually it's yeah. easy to identify in advance a person who, you know, has been fed a steady diet of Fox News and Breitbart for the last however many years and, and who are, are, are basically, uh, you know, immune to, to, to contradictory facts and information. Whereas, you know, the number of people that I met in the Philippines who seem to be like otherwise informed, you know, intelligent people who then, you know, would, would laugh at, you know, and say like, oh, yeah, boy, you guys sure sure picked a winner with Donald Trump, huh? And I'd be like, yeah, and you guys sure scored with Duterte. And they'll be like, what do you mean? I love my president. And I'm just like, they're the same person. <laughs> like, how, like how, how is this possible? Uh, but, but, you know, yeah, given given all that, yeah, I've, I've been I've been wondering if if one of the things that could finally, you know, take the bloom off the rose a little bit is is his mm -hmm. response to the to the pandemic. So, 
you know, but, but I, you know, based on my totally anecdotal survey of, you know, my, my Facebook friends in the Philippines, you know, I see a bunch of them who are complaining about it. And then one or two are just like, you know, pray for our president. And I'm just like, boy. <laughs> um, the thing is, like, when I talk to, like, people who, like, voted for him or who continue to support him, um, what I get is, like, he gives his people what, what they want. I, I'll give you some examples. Um, I did my internship like, in a government hospital. Like before, I got used to people dying left and right. Like I got like immune to it. I got, I got numb. Hmm. And then, like when the became president, like a year from since he got elected, um, he signed laws like like in, in government hospitals. You get free medicine. You get free treatment. And like no other president has done that before. Also, like now they're like. Um, you got free education if you go to a government college or university. Interesting. And again, like it never happened in, in, in the previous presidencies. Okay. So, so, so I think that shows that there's like funds for it. There's like a budget for like free education, for free hospitalization. And then like people start to realize you know, where, where's the money like before? Interesting. Like, where's the money going? So like they, maybe they're thinking like, like corruption and stuff. So I would think like if he continues to, to like give people what they want, um, it's like close ties to China won't really like affect his popularity. Interesting. That's that's interesting. I wonder if if it's occurred to people that, and I don't know if this is true either. I'm just speculating that that maybe that money wasn't there before and wasn't now either. Maybe it's borrowed from China. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, not that there's anything. Wrong I wouldn't with that. know. I mean, I like it's, you know, solid economic systems yeah. usually involve borrowing money and then making investments for the future in that sense. But, uh, but, but it's 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 interesting though the way you describe the fact that he has apparently been able to provide a bunch of services that were not available before and and maybe is able to avoid responsibility for some of his more let's say erratic behaviors uh, <laughs> uh, on, on the basis of having given people stuff which 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 is a good thing i mean mm -hmm. it's, i think it's a good thing for a government to provide education and health care um i just i my personal you know wish is that he was able to do that without you know bragging about killing people and uh, you know, pub publicly musing <laughs> about how he, as mayor of Davao, should have been allowed to rape the, you know, the, the nuns first or, or whatever that insane quote was. Um, so I, I guess... Uh, if you I want guess, to talk like about it, it you, you need another episode. <laughs> no, if you want to talk about it, you need another episode. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Yeah, let's save that one for another one. Before we wrap up, I, I, did, I wanted to ask you one more question about, uh, about how... Um, uh, how our own uh, workplace has changed as a result of this. You talked earlier in our conversation about how, you know, when you were exposed how to, to a corona are. patient, you basically got yeah. back. Y'all were following the same protocols as a bunch of other places. And then, you know, you got exposed immediately yeah. to quarantine. I assume now the way things are being handled is quite different, no? Uh, you know, like the first day I was I worked in the hospital, um, there was like a distant lack of protective equipment. I mean, it's not just in the Philippines. You know, it occurs everywhere, like in the U.S., yeah. like in Spain, like elsewhere in Europe. It's happening everywhere because no one, no one's prepared for this. Like after the pandemic, no one anticipated this. Mm -hmm. So, like we were like reusing like a mask, which is not really advisable, but like we had no yeah. choice. Like maybe two weeks after, um, I think like the government was like doing stuff. Right? They're, like they've been buying, importing a lot of like the equipment, and then for the past week. 
Um, there have been a lot of companies producing those locally now. So I think eventually we won't have any more problems regarding the supplies. Okay. Because right now, like I still like reuse. Like, like a I was going to say, how how many how how long no, like, in, how long online. are you having to go through like like a particular like a mask and a gown? How long on average are you using those? Uh, I I use like um like for an entire shift. Okay, which is how long? Because like gowns, uh, like twelve okay. hours. Uh, like for, uh, with the gowns, like we don't really run out of it. Like the problem is more with like the N95 mask. Okay, I'm not going to go to work with just a surgical okay. mask. Uh, I think a factor would be like you're in the early phase. Um, I mentioned this earlier. So before we like we tend to group patients. If they do not fit the criteria, doctors who see them don't wear any protective oh. equipment. Then apparently, like some patients that they would help, they tend to like withhold information. They didn't tell they like they had recent, recent travel history, or like they would say they, they didn't know anyone who like who had any symptoms. So you would group them, and then um, they won't be isolated from like other patients. So they they would be seen as regular patients. So like in the early days, a, a lot of doctors got infected. I mean, got they got infected that way. I see. Because they didn't like they didn't like wear equipment because of the the, the patients they were seeing they did not fit the criteria. Okay, so I, I assume now that's all changed. Um, that is all changed because right now um, they won't allow any healthcare workers to, to to like to go to work if they are not fully okay. equipped. So they're trying to prevent that now. Well, that seems like a, that seems like a the change. only problem is, is right now I think. Um, a lot of hospitals, they're still getting overwhelmed. Because the main point of the quarantine is like just to give like the government time to provide adequate facilities. Because you know the problem with the virus, right? It spreads rap- rapidly. That's mm-hmm. the main problem. I mean, most people probably don't won't get any symptoms, and then then those who get symptoms, they won't be severe enough to be hospitalized. Mm-hmm. But the problem is with the rate that it's spreading, no country has enough hospital beds to admit everyone who would need to be hospitalized. So that's the main problem. So right now we're still in the process of converting a lot of facilities. So right now um, there's still not enough room. Yeah, that seems to be, I mean, that seems to be the big big issue almost everywhere is that like we just, you know, know, nobody imagines, well, very few people imagine this level of infection. and, And so it seems like healthcare systems, you know, even the best ones, uh, you know, in European countries, are just not prepared for the wave that's that's coming. So, well, I, I got to say, I, I'm I'm glad that even though you're having to reuse a mask, that you have at least decent PPE at the moment. I hope that situation continues. Well, well, Jerry, thank you so much for for, for talking to me about your experience with this and 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 your your own story and everything. I really appreciate your your perspective. Um, I want to be a you know I want to be respectful of your time. I realize it's quite a bit later there than it is here. So uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to like to say or talk about? No, let's just stay, save stuff in <laughs> the right, episode. <laughs> well, hey, thanks so much again for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, hang in there, man. Stay safe. Yeah, yeah thank and thanks you. for having me. Well, that does it for the first episode of OK Talks. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. I'd also like to say a big thank you, of course, to Jerry for stepping up to be my first victim and to my friend Nate Wright, both for all his great advice on the technical side of setting this up and for putting together the podcast cover art. Finally, if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 
Your doing so on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts will elevate this show and attract potential future listeners. I really appreciate your help, and don't worry, doing so is nothing like accidentally giving your email to a Senate campaign. You can always unsubscribe later on. Thanks again for listening. Until the next episode, stay inside, stay safe, stay healthy, stay cool. Mm.